to invite your attention, if you have a Bible, to open to Philippians 4. I'm just going to read the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... Actually, in, in chapter 3, Paul in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers... And then a whole chapter later, therefore, my brothers, typical preacher, you know, you think he's done and he just keeps rolling on. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, (laughs) there he goes again. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, I do thank you for each one who's come. And Lord, uh, as we look to a new year, we ask you to uh, help us to take an inward look at our own hearts this morning. Do the work that only you can do by your Spirit in our lives. Make us different people because we came. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. just want to look, and you'll see in your, um, in your worship folder that you have seven uh, items that are lined up there. And so a real simple outline this morning. just going to look at uh, seven things or seven reminders uh, that I think we could all use for entering a new year, the new year of 2016. Number one, Paul says, stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. The Lord. I guess my, uh, my own paraphrase of this would be trust Jesus no matter what. Literally, no matter what. You know, you gotta love Paul. You would think that the Philippians would be saying to Paul, Paul, stand firm in the Lord because Paul is in chains in a Roman prison, right? He's, uh, he's had, he talks about the difficulties that he's encountered and he's in prison and he's in chains. He's not certain what's going to happen, not certain whether they're going to execute him or whether they're going to let him go. Uh, but he says instead, it's not the Philippians saying to Paul, stand firm. It's Paul saying to the Philippians, stand fast in the Lord. See, everybody has, uh, all of us have a breaking point when, when trials, tribulations, uh, Difficulties come into our lives. All of us have a point where in our flesh, in and of ourselves, we just reach the point. You've heard somebody say, I've, I've had it. I've just had it. And we reach that point. But Paul didn't reach that point. You know why? 
It's a question of where you're standing, where, where your trust is. Paul was standing fast in the Lord. And I guess I would make, by way of application here, I would say that what this really means for us guys and what it means for me personally is Jesus Christ needs to be the greatest dependency in my life. Wives, your husbands will disappoint you. Just shake your head yes, gentlemen. Yeah. Husbands, your wives will disappoint you. Mom and dad, your kids will disappoint you. Kids, your parents will disappoint you. The truth is, for every one of us, every single person in our life will disappoint us at some time or another. The only person who will never disappoint you is Jesus Christ. And that's why it's critical that he be the greatest dependency in our lives, bar none. You know, in, in, in Psalm 27, David is going uh, through sort of a litany of, again, of struggles. David was always in some kind of trouble some kind of struggle. But near the end of the psalm, he says, Oh, God, my Savior, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Where did he get that kind of confidence? Where did he get that kind of trust? Well, I would suggest to you he got it because the Lord was his greatest dependency. And if we have any dependency that is greater than Jesus Christ in our life, ultimately it is an unhealthy dependency. Dependency. So as we enter 2016, I guess my, my greatest exhortation to myself, and believe me, uh, God has worked me over about this incredibly, is that I need to keep Jesus Christ, to get him back to the place where he is the greatest dependency in my life. Stand fast in the Lord, number one. Number two, not only stand fast in the Lord, but be of the same mind in the Lord. Guess if I had a paraphrase for this one, I would say church unity uber alles. Church unity over everything. And, you know, everything in a sense in this epistle, everything that Paul set up to this point, up to chapter 4, was kind of leading to this point. And what's interesting to me, there, there is a problem in the church in Philippi. This is often called Paul's favorite church. But even Paul's favorite church, the one that supported him when no one else supported him financially, the one who sent help and aid to him when no one else sent help or aid, even his favorite church, this great church in Philippi, has dissension. They've got a schism going on. And interestingly enough, Paul names the two people who are kind of at the heart of this problem, but he never tells us what the actual problem is. You know why I think that is? You know why he never tells us what the actual problem was? It's because it doesn't matter what the problem was. It was not a critical issue. It was what one pastor friend of mine refers to as a green carpet, red carpet thing. You know, in, in 16 years as a pastor and, and seven of those in a, a doing church health consulting in addition, I've been in a lot of churches, guys, but I've never seen, and I've seen a lot of churches with troubles, a lot of churches with dissension, a lot of churches with splits, but I have never seen a single church that split because, for example, someone was denying the deity of Christ or someone was denying the virgin birth. 
Or someone was denying that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and that it's by faith plus works. Those are essentials. Those are things that we absolutely must agree upon. Every single dissension and split and schism that I have ever seen was a blue carpet or green carpet, red carpet issue. In other words, a non-essential. You know, and what happens is, it's fine to actually call it that, the red carpet, green carpet thing, because everything else, that's, everything that's non-essential is just that. It's non-essential, so it can all fall under that category. But what happens is, people get their mind made up that this is really a mountain, a hill worth dying on, and they take sides, they develop a leader, as we have here in Philippi, two ladies that were the leader, one the leader of the red carpet group, the other the leader of the green carpet group, And they decide they're going to have their way no matter what. And when that happens, when that goes on, two things happen. Satan gets a foothold in the lives of those individuals, and Satan gets a foothold in the church. And so they reach the point where the individuals say, I'm going to have my way no matter what. And you know what? Guys, we're all sinners saved by grace. So we're all capable of this. Even the disciples in their in their year in their three years with Jesus Christ, there was an ongoing argument. You can read it in Mark 9, uh, you can read it in uh, Luke 22. There was an ongoing argument among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. Even on the very night before Jesus was crucified at what we call the Last Supper, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22 that they were again having the argument as to which one of them was the greatest. And so what happens is people are determined that when they get, when they, when they're heading up these various groups that are at odds with each other in any local church, they are going to be number one. They're going to win, but they're not. One commentator says it this way. He's referring to the disciples in Luke 22. He says, In the disciples' day, there was strife as a result of some who wanted to be great. And in our day, all the division and strife that has come in among the people of God can be traced to this one root. Somebody wanted to be great. But see... That's exactly the opposite of what God has called us to. That's the way the world does business, but that's not the way we're supposed to do business. When Jesus realized at the Last Supper that this had been going on again, that they had been arguing among themselves as to who was the greatest, this is what he said to them. He said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over their people, but it shall not be that way with you. Whoever among you wants to be the greatest shall be the least. Whoever, you, whoever among you wants to be number one needs to be the servant of everyone. In other words, in the church, the way up is down. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that. And what Paul is trying to do to, to the Philippian church and get through to them is to say, listen, you must, in order to be first, you've got to be willing to be last. Euodia, Syntyche, in order for Philippi, for the church to come together the way, the way they're supposed to, red carpet has to be willing to lose to green carpet. Green carpet has to be willing to give in to red carpet. We can't let these things come between us. 
And by the way, Bergen Park Church, kudos to you. Kudos. From the very first time Janine and I sat here uh, in a church meeting, it was only the second or third time we had been here. And you guys had a church meeting going on. It was over in the old building. And we came in, and I observed what went on. I thought, oh, boy, we're here for a church meeting. This ought to be interesting. I've been in a lot of church meetings. Can I honestly say that I have never seen a body of believers who takes church unity so seriously and, and does it so well and insists on keeping things together, keeping the main things the main things, and not allowing non-essentials to cause schisms. Kudos to you guys. I, I'll be honest. Again, 16 years pastoring and seven years as a church health consultant, I've never seen a church as united as you guys. It's one of the reasons we, it's such a joy to be here. It really is. You know, you'll hear in the community, well, Bergen Park Church is affecting all of Evergreen. Some of you say, yeah, well, that's because they've got a big new building. <laughs> well, okay, that's part of the equation maybe. They've got a big new building. Oh, and, and they got a big new building because a lot of people gave generously of their money. That, that's part of the equation, too. Uh, they got a big, and they ended up with that property because, uh, you know, they waited like 10, 12 years, and they kept praying and praying and praying to get it, and finally, finally it just fell into the, kind of fell into their lap. Well, maybe that's part of the equation, too. But let me tell you, none of those things would have happened if there hadn't been a united body striving together and keeping the main thing the main thing and refusing to let the enemy get a foothold. So kudos to Bergen Park Church. Number one, stand fast in the Lord. Number two, be of the same mind in the Lord. Number three, rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, rejoice. You know, if you think of Paul sitting in that Roman prison, uh, if, he, if he looked around strictly on the horizontal level, he sees the fact that he's in chains, he's in a Roman prison, uh, he's got false teachers outside the church, uh, he's got false teachers inside the church. He's got teachers in the church that are teaching from, from bad motives. And now his favorite church, the Philippian church, has got a division, a schism going on. So if Paul looks around strictly on the horizontal level, he'd probably want to cry. I would. But Paul doesn't look on the horizontal. He looks on the vertical. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice and, you know, the same might be true in your lives. You look around. I, I don't know everything that's going on in, in, in the lives of the folks here in Bergen Park Church, but I know some of you, and I know some of the heartaches. And maybe you're looking around on the horizontal, and you're thinking, I just can't take it anymore. Can I encourage you to do what Paul did? Get your eyes off of the horizontal and the temporal and get your eyes on the eternal and on the Lord. It'll make all the difference in the world in perspective. Where I, um, where I was born and spent the first, oh, 14 years of my life uh, was Camden, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia. And there was a guy who was uh, a very famous boxer. He was heavyweight champion of the world at one point. Uh, and he was born in Camden about five blocks from where, I was, from where I grew up. His name was Joe Walcott, Jersey Joe Walcott. Any of you remember that name from the fighting, fighting game? <laughs> okay. And I have a good friend back in Jersey who was a boxing fanatic. Uh, he actually was a boxer himself for a while. And his hero in the boxing realm is Rocky Marciano. He has, all, you talk about memorabilia, you go to this guy's house, he has all things Marciano. 
Whatever was available, whatever you could get, and, and things that I have no clue where he got them, he got them. And Rocky Marciano, in his opinion, is the greatest uh, professional fighter that ever lived. Well, in 1951, Joe Walcott uh, became the heavyweight champion of the world. He beat a guy by the name of Ezra Charles. And when Walcott beat Charles for the heavyweight championship of the world in 1951... Walcott, at that point, was the oldest man to ever become heavyweight champion at the age of 37. He, only, he held that title for one year. He defended it successfully once or twice, I'm not sure. Uh, and then he came up against Rocky Marciano. And for the first 10 rounds of the fight, my dad was actually at this fight um, in Philadelphia. For the first 10 rounds of the fight, Walcott dominated. He was a superb boxer, even knocked Marciano down at one point. Uh, but basically, for the first 10 rounds of the fight, he was pounding Marciano. My father had to leave the fight in the 10th round and came home and told my mom, Walcott beat Marciano. It was great. You know, I couldn't stay for the last few rounds, but he beat Marciano. My father wakes up the next morning to our local paper, the Courier Post, to see Marciano KOs Walcott in the 13th round. But my friend says, you know what? He goes, I've got every film of Rocky Marciano there is. He said, and I love, he goes, but that particular fight, he said, I sit there and I watch it and I watch it. He goes, and I can barely get through the 10 rounds. He goes, cause my guy's getting killed. He's getting peppered. He's getting hammered. He said, and the only reason I can make it through those first 10 or 11 rounds is that I know that in the 13th, Marciano lands a right to Walcott's jaw that some have referred to as the most devastating punch in boxing history. And Walcott falls into the ropes, tangled in the ropes, and finally falls to the canvas, out cold. And he says, you know why I can get through those first 10 or 11 rounds? Because I know that in the end, my guy wins. And guys, what I would say is, no matter what you're going through, no matter what life's thrown at you in 2015 or will throw at you in 2016. Keep looking up. Keep looking to the vertical and not the horizontal. Remember that in the end, our guy wins. So, and, and, when he, and because he wins, we win. There's no question about that. So don't let the temporal get you bogged down to the point where you become discouraged. Look up and rejoice with Paul in the Lord. And again, he says... Rejoice. Number four, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. You know, in a very real sense, this, this fourth one, let your gentleness be known to all men, in my mind, is kind of a culmination of the first three points. Gentleness is, is, is essential, especially for people that are actively ministering in the church, leaders in the church, elders in the church. In 2 Timothy 2, and verse 24, Paul says, The servant of the Lord must be gentle and able to teach. It's basically the opposite, guys, of the way, again, the way the world does business. In the world, you know, if you're going to be a person of influence, if you're going to be a leader, you got to be willing to step on fingers and step on toes. You know, you got to be a little bit ruthless. There's one friend of mine who likes to say who's, who is in, very successful in the corporate realm. He says, it's not a dog-love-dog dog world out there. It isn't. 
But that's not the way it works. Again, the church is absolutely countercultural. It's the opposite of the way the world does business. The way up is down. Let your gentleness be known to all men. I love to read uh, the old Plymouth Brethren commentators from uh, 19th century in, in England and Ireland. One of them is a guy named Hamilton Smith. And he says this. He says, let us remember that it's important, it is vital to exhibit the character of Christ. More vital than to assert our opinions, even if we're right. Men can oppose our opinions, they can oppose our assertions, they can oppose our violent protests, but who can stand against gentleness? Gentleness is irresistible. Not out there, but in here, it is. It should be. It's supposed to be. Let your gentleness be known to all. Not your ability to win an argument. Let your gentleness be known to all. And then then Paul adds this little caveat. I love this. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now, we can take that one of two ways. We can take it that Paul's talking about the doctrine of imminence, which means that Jesus could come back at any moment, and that's true, absolutely. His return is imminent. Or we can take it that God, one of God's attributes is that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, when there's, when there's a struggle going on, maybe between you and another brother or sister in Christ or a situation in the church where you're tempted, you know, to get your knickers in a knot and start, and start handling things the way the world would and lose your temper a little bit, Paul says, remember something. The Lord is at hand. Whatever the struggle is, whatever the problem is, whatever the difficulty is, 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 is the Lord unaware of it? Is the Lord not present? Sure he is. And if we refuse to handle things the way the world does, and we handle things the way the Scripture says we should in the church, then the Lord's going to work it out because he's always at hand. He's always there. As I like to tell couples when I marry them, he's the silent guest at every meal and the silent listener at every conversation. So let your gentleness be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. Number five. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Let me actually read the full verse. Do not be anxious about... I'm reading in the NIV. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, what we normally do with this verse is treat it as kind of a standalone verse. Um, and, and trust me, as someone who struggled my entire life with anxiety, with being a, a, a worrywart, I love this verse, and I've, I've, I've tried my whole adult life to really understand exactly what it's saying. But what I did for a lot of years was I did exactly that. I didn't listen to my training, and instead I sort of treated it as a standalone verse. But if we take it in context, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, what, what Paul is really saying is 
Don't argue about the problem. Pray about the problem. Don't argue the difference in opinion. Pray about it and allow the Lord to sort it out among you. Now, the two ladies at the heart of this uh, controversy in Philippi, uh, Paul mentions them by name in verse 2. Uh, it's When you look at their names in the original language, if you're looking at a Greek New Testament, uh, it's a little hard to know how to pronounce them. The best pronunciation I've come up with is uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, Pastor Jim told me this week he thinks their names were odious and stinky, but I'm not convinced about that. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, but, but these two ladies um, have basically made this a, st- a Mexican standoff. You know, they're, 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 gonna, they're both determined that they're going to win. But Paul says, no, listen, what that does in the church when you reach that mentality, when you take that position, is it causes anxiety for everybody. It causes heartache for everybody. And we can't go that way, but here's the way that you go. Don't be anxious, don't be argumentative, but in everything, in all the, in all the issue, uh, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let the need be known to God. Let the Lord straighten it out. If you handle it that way, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. And by the way, as I look at Bergen Park Church and what you guys have, the point that you've come to from where you were, say, 10 years ago to the point you are now, and the fact that there has been no schism, no dissension, no division, frankly, that passes all human understanding. It does. In my experience, that doesn't happen much. 95% of churches never get from where you came from to where you are now without major conflict. Why haven't you had it? Well, I believe because basically you guys have been enacting verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Don't, don't let anxiety take over. Don't let argumentation take over. And, and I can just almost hear Euodia and Syntyodius and Stinky saying, if, if I don't argue... I'm with the green carpet people. If I don't argue and fight, the red carpet people might win. And the red carpet lady, the other one's saying, if I don't argue with green, they might win. Yeah, they might. But that's okay. That's okay. The goal isn't to win over or to get over on somebody else or to get your way on a given issue. The goal is to maintain the unity of the body of Christ the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul says it elsewhere. When, you, when we do that, when that becomes our main goal, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds individually and corporately. So again, kudos to Bergen Park Church. Another uh, of the old Plymouth brethren, my favorite among them, is a guy named uh, Charles Henry McIntosh, C.H. McIntosh. And McIntosh was one of, the, in, one of the real true scholars in the Plymouth Brethren movement. And for many, many years in London, he was the editor of uh, a large evangelical uh, magazine slash bulletin slash paper. And Macintosh was known in his day for not only being a scholar among scholars, but also for having tremendous insight on the devotional level. So his, his writings were in great demand. But as was pretty common among the Plymouth Brethren, 
He was a guy who uh, was very unassuming and believed that it was wrong for him uh, to promote himself in any way. So 90% of what he wrote, he would sim- he either didn't sign it at all or he simply put his initials, C-H-M. And you know what happened? His writings were so incredible, people actually, and he refused to copyright any of it. People actually stole his stuff, incorporated it into their own, and sold it for a profit. And when people came to, to Macintosh and said, do you know what's going on? And they explained what's going on. He was like, yeah, I, I know. He said, as long as the Lord is promoted, as long as the Lord is glorified, I don't care. He said, and I, if, if they're doing things that are absolutely, that are really wrong, then they'll have to give an account to the Lord. But that's not my business. That's the kind of guy he was. And he, and he wrote a lot about, about our, our sinful nature and how the, the sanctification process is really about overcoming self and our, and our very real tendency to promote ourselves, just like the disciples wanting to be number one, right? Well, listen to what he said, and I, I love this. This is a collection of writings that I would highly recommend to you. Um, it's published today. Or I, don't, I don't even know if it's, I don't think it's in publication right now, but it's called Short Papers. Two volumes, short papers by Charles Henry Mackintosh. Listen to what he says. He says, there's no place in all the universe where self will be so pulled to pieces as in the church of God. And is it not well? Is it not a powerful proof of the divine ground on which the church is gathered? Are we not? Should we not be glad to have our hateful self pulled to pieces? Shall we? Or ought we to run away from those who do it for us? Are we not glad? Do we not often pray to be rid of our sinful self? But then we quarrel with those who are God's instruments in answering our prayers. True, they may do it, do the work in a rough and clumsy way, but no matter for that. Whoever helps me to crush and sink self does me a kind turn, however awkwardly he may do it. One thing is certain, no man can ever rob us of that which, after all, is the only thing worth having, namely Christ. This is our precious consolation. Let self go, and we will have the more of Christ. And he's commenting specifically on Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 2. And he goes on to say, Euodia might lay the blame on Syntyche. Syntyche might lay the blame on Euodia. The apostle does not raise the question of which one was right or which one was wrong. He simply begs them both to be of the same mind in the Lord. Here is the divine secret. It is self-surrender. But it must be the real thing. There's no use in talking about sinking self while at the same time self is fed and patted on the back. We sometimes pray with marvelous fervor to be enabled to trample our sinful selves in the dust. And the very next moment, if anyone seems to cross our path, self is like a porcupine with all of his quills up. This will never do. Amen? And that's unfortunately how it often happens in the church. Remember the Corinthian church? They had these... They have more problems. Philippi, it seems to have been one particular issue. The Corinthian church was loaded with issues. That's all they had was issues. 
And they reached the point, remember, where they were taking, they, they were not only arguing within the church, they were refusing to settle their disputes within the church, and they're taking each other to court, remember that, before unbelievers? And then Paul really comes down on them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, he says, What a disgrace! Wouldn't it be better if you simply accepted being wronged? Wouldn't it be better if you simply accepted being cheated rather than bring disgrace on yourself and on the church of God by going before unbelievers? Guys, no issue, no issue is that important. If it's a non-essential, then it's just that. It's not essential. So we don't let it come between us. Number six, meditate on these things, Paul says. Again, that's in verse 8. Again, I want to go back and actually read the verse. He says, finally, my brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Uh, IBM came out with the saying way back, late 70s, early 80s, GI. G-O. Who knows what that means? Jim does. Garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. And, it, and, and our minds are the greatest computers ever. That's exactly how it works with our minds. Paul's saying, be very careful what you put into this incredible, incredible thing that God has placed between your ears and on your shoulders. Be careful what you program it with. Be careful what you allow to go in through the eye gate and the ear gate. Because, remember Proverbs 23 and verse 7? Solomon says, as a man or woman, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. And all that verse simply means is the things that we really consider important, the things we really set our mind on, the things we really meditate on and think about on a regular basis have a tendency to come out in the way that we live. They work themselves out in our our day-to-day life. So Paul is saying, meditate on these things. And you know what, guys? Can I just tell you that the best way to make Christ the greatest dependency in your life, to make sure that you're taking in the right things through the eye gate and the ear gate so that the outliving of your life is one that honors God. And another thing I love about Bergen Park Church, we're all in process None of us are perfect. We don't expect it from each other. But that doesn't give us the right to intentionally lower the bar. You know what I mean? It doesn't, as I said in my own life, it doesn't give us the right to put sin on the calendar, to kind of schedule it, you know? I mean, we don't actually do that, but we can do it in our minds. And can I suggest that you and I will never make Christ our greatest dependency. We will never be living out the faith that the Lord wants us to live out if we don't have a regular time with God. Confession is good for the soul. I've been out of pastoral ministry for two plus years, two and two years and seven or eight months. And I have to tell you, the disciplines that I had for a good part of my, that I've had for a good part of my Christian life, the wheels have come off most of those in the last three years. I guess I feel kind of like Tony Campolo. I heard him one time. Uh, speak in uh, in Ocean City, New Jersey, at a place called the Ocean City Tabernacle, and he said, 
if you knew everything there was to know about me, you would never ask me to speak to you today. And then he goes on to say, but if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't have accepted. So (laughs) we're all kind of in the same boat. But listen, guys, the disciplines have fallen off my life in so many ways. One of them is simply a daily quiet time. And I've been trying to think what I need to get back to that. And I'll be honest with you. You know, one of the things we can do, and Paul talks, this is a very biblical concept. Paul talks about it in Romans, is provoke one another to jealousy. Can I tell you that Pastor Jim has had the discipline of reading through the Bible, one that I used to have in a year, a one-year Bible. And I was thinking about it the other day, and I thought, you know what, I haven't done it in years. And that's one way that I can immediately establish a time with God every day. It takes about 20 minutes a day to read the daily readings in a one-year Bible. And then talk about provoking the jealousy in a good way. I thought, you know what, if Jim can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's and that's a good thing. It, seriously, it was kind of like uh, Proverbs twenty seven seventeen in action. Proverbs twenty seven seventeen says, "As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend." And I've resolved I'm going to do it. If Jim can do it, I'm going to do it. So we can hold each other accountable, Jim, for this year. I need to get that discipline back because I will never what. As a man thinks, the things that we set in our brains, the things we program in our brains, are going to come out in the way we live. I need that discipline, and so do you. So how about that, guys? Do you have a daily meeting with the Lord? Do you have a time when you're alone with him every day? If you don't and you're not sure how to start it, why not read through the Bible in a year with us? Let's do it. Good way to start. Number seven. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. It's an obvious statement, but um, remember back in verse 6, he said, if we pray instead of fight, then the peace of God will be with us. But here he says, not only will you have the peace of God, you will have the God of peace present in your life. Guys, one of the things that I haven't felt the way I have felt in years past, and it's because I've lost a lot of the spiritual disciplines in my life, is the felt presence of God in my life, day by day. I have glimpses of it, shadows of it, here and there, as I go throughout my day, yeah, but not an abiding sense of the felt presence of God that gives me that peace that passes understanding, that enables me to keep Jesus Christ as the greatest dependency of my life, that enables me to live not perfectly, but in a way that overall honors God. You know, I don't want to close with this. you got to love Paul, the Apostle Paul. Think about this guy. Think about this guy. He's, he's in a Roman prison. Things seem to be falling apart in terms of uh, his work and what's going on in the church. Think of what he, what he went through in his life. The, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and read the list, it's unbelievable. The beatings, the floggings, uh, nearly stoned to death, uh, exposure to the elements, shipwrecked, uh, food deprivation, betrayal. And yet this guy, for between three and four decades, faithfully stood 
fast in the Lord. And when he gets to the end of his life, you can read it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He gets to the end of his life and he writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me before winter. Demas, I guess the only disciple that was with him, Demas left me. He's fallen in love with this present world. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Nero had put Paul back in prison, and this time they weren't going to let him out. They decided they are going to execute him. And I guess Paul knew it. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And now there, there awaits me the crown of righteousness which the Lord himself will give me. You know, if that had been me, and I found that, you know, Nero threw me back in prison, I found out that they're going to execute me. And remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. How did they execute Roman citizens? Decapitated them. I would have wrote to Timothy, said, Timothy, get your butt down here. They're about to cut my head off. Not Paul. You've got to love the guy. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I've, I've kept the fight. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I have kept the faith. Pray that by God's grace, uh, you and I will be able to say that uh, when we get to the end of 2016. Father, thank you for this amazing man that you used in such an amazing way. And Lord, I just pray... Thank you for working me over this week. And uh, I pray that you'll give me the grace to be able to put these things, to do these things, so that you, the God of peace, will be with me. I pray for each one, Lord. Make your word real. Make it relevant. Make it life-transforming in the hearts of all those here. In Jesus' name.